watch that and then jump into Acts chapter 17. The trajectory of Christianity in our world today has been studied, and some of the results you might find surprising. Uh, They have looked into where we stood internationally, globally, in terms of where Christianity sits um, in the population, and in the U.S. and Canada, uh, the the number of Christians in U.S. and Canada makes up 11% of Christians globally. Uh, By 2050, that number is expected to drop down to 8%. Now, I don't know if that's the surprising statistic, though. Uh, The the one that is shocking for many is that in Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Oceania areas, they make up 67% of the Christians today. Now, that number, just over 100 years ago, was only 18%. It's now 67%. And by 2050, it'll likely be 77%. As we think about just the continent of Africa, they have the most dense population of Christians of any nation in the world. And uh, currently, they sit at 30, uh, excuse me, at 27% of the, the population of Christians are in Africa. And that's going to, predicted to be by 2050, 39% just on the continent of Africa. Now, as we think about the global spread of Christianity, we are so happy that the message of Jesus is reaching the ends of the earth. But I think in our context, we need to pause. We need to stop and reflect and ask some questions about why we are where we are in the U.S. and Canada and what we might do about that so that the trend doesn't go from 11% down to 8% but so that we can reverse that trend and once again have Christ as a part of the conversation in our society, in our nation. Now, there are a lot of answers to this question, right, about why has this happened in America? We we could probably spend the rest of our time speculating about all the ideas and the reasons as to why this is the case. Let me just offer two. One is individual and then one is communal. Uh, Two reasons why this may be the case among the many. Uh, One is this. This is the individual. Uh, There was a study that came out this year, 2023, by Barna, and they found that the reason that people who don't have a faith doubt Christianity is by far hypocrisy. The number one reason is hypocrisy. People that claim that they believe in Jesus, but they don't follow him in their actions and lifestyle. And that disconnect between what they say they believe and what they actually do, it's a turnoff to people uh, that don't believe and don't have faith, and they, they doubt Christianity because of that. The other reason that I'll suggest is, is a communal one. This is all of us collectively. And I, I think that what has happened is we have made church in our modern era about us 
our personal preferences, and our Christian consumerism instead of about everyone, which is who Jesus came to save. And so what has happened is over time, we have gotten comfortable. We want things the way that we like them. It was done a certain way and always been done that way, and so we're going to continue to do it that way because, by golly, if we did something different, someone might leave. And then we've neglected to continue on mission with Jesus to reach the ends of the earth here and everywhere else. And so what we have is a a declining church, a, a loss of influence in society around the name of Jesus. Now, as a church, New Hope Christian Church, we were founded in 1953. So this year is our 70 year anniversary as a community of faith. And and I thought we could just play this out in our minds a little bit. What if New Hope had decided the way that we did it in 1953 was the only way it should ever be done, and we never changed anything? Thank goodness we didn't do that, and many great people along the way have adapted and changed and updated things so that we could continue on the mission that Jesus gave us back in Matthew 28, to go into all the world and make disciples. Uh, We're not changing the message. We're not just placating culture or compromising what we believe. We're actually updating our methodology so that we can continue to be effective in the world we find ourselves in. So in the last 70 years, we could really just say in the last seven years, could we not? How drastically has the world changed? And if New Hope had said, you know what, no, no, we want to keep the, the carpet and the pews and the wooden pews. It, you, you remember those, I'm sure, uh, some of you that have been here a long time. And uh, we, we updated some of that stuff. Um, we have updated some of the music or some of the ministries. We've updated things along the way, not just to be cool, <laughs> but in order to be effective at making disciples of all nations. And what, what inevitably can happen in churches is we we begin to just become inward focused and we lose sight of the priority of our mission. We prioritize our, ourselves instead of our mission and we end up staying the same. Uh, and it ends up being a detriment to the church and to the community around us. It's like the church is playing defense instead of playing offense. And all along, Christ has called us to go. So what would it look like for you and I, to recapture the passion, the urgency, the effectiveness, the fervor that the early church had. That's what we've been studying in the book of Acts. Uh, this series, Paul of Tarsus and the road, the journey, excuse me, to Rome, it's all about the missionary journeys that Paul has taken from Acts chapter 13 on. And today as we come to Acts 17, what we'll find is, I believe, the most parallel example in all of the book of Acts to the context in which we live today. In other words, if you search all of the cities of the ancient world, all of the cities that we read about in the book of Acts, I think that Athens might be the most parallel to the place and the context we find ourselves in today. And not only is it a message of what happened then, I think this is a model for what could be For you and I right now. So we want to have eyes to see. We want to have ears to hear. What it is 
that God is doing in Athens so that we can learn what God might be doing in America and what we as Christians, followers of Jesus, should be doing so that we can once again have that passion, fervor, effectiveness of reaching people with the message of hope. So let's set up the context in Acts chapter 17. Down in verse 16, this is the backdrop, and then we're going to look at the sermon that Paul gives in Acts 17. Here's the backdrop. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed. This word greatly distressed, I mean, he was just, he, he, he couldn't believe his eyes. He, he was beside himself. He was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned, again, another important word, he's using logic, he's using persuasion, rationale, he, he's reasoning at the synagogue. These would have been people that believed in the Jewish God, Yahweh. They were Jews or converts, proselytes to Judaism. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace. Now, the synagogue would be like the church. The marketplace is where the people lived. It's where they would buy and sell and trade. It's where they did life. As well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> what in the world? Like, he's just talking nonsense. He's babbling. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. Remember, it's a polytheistic society. Many idols, pagans, they worshipped all of the Greek gods of the pantheon. And they're like, this guy seems to know about another God that we haven't even heard about yet. Foreign God. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know this new teaching that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. The Areopagus is the place where they would have these debates and discussions. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But I want you to note this word new. You may underline or circle that word in your Bible. We'll come back to it as well. There's this new teaching. There are these strange ideas and they're discussing and debating and dialoguing about them at the Areopagus. And then Luke, the author, he gives us this great footnote. All right. I love this. He says, all the Athenians and foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. It's like, wow, wouldn't that be nice? Just sitting around having coffee, hanging out at the gate and debating the latest ideas. So a handful of comments about this uh, before we get to the teaching, the sermon. Paul does what Paul did in every city. He goes first to the synagogue, then to the marketplace. He goes first to the Jewish people, then he goes to the Gentile people. We don't have recorded what he did in the synagogue, but we assume, we presume that it was like all of the other times he went to a synagogue. It was detailed in Acts 13 and in other places. He reasoned with those people to say, your Old Testament scriptures point to Jesus. He is the fulfillment and God's Messiah, and in him there is life, his death, burial, and resurrection. Then he goes into the marketplace, and he has this sermon that he gives 
that we're about to read and study, it's different than what he does in the synagogue. Luke here is drawing our attention to what happens in Athens, in the marketplace. That's the emphasis of this chapter. And and again, it's the same message about Jesus and resurrection. Uh, But he uses different analogies or an approach, a framing, a different framing in order to bring the people to the same truth uh, that he would in the mark, or excuse me, in the synagogue. And, and so as we, as we think about this, I just want to make sure that we wrap our heads around the, the basic idea of the word gospel. The word gospel is that God sent his son Jesus to earth, to us, so that we could have a way back to God. We were loved and and created in God's image. We were loved by him. We have rebelled. We have sinned. We've fallen away and been separated from God by our sin, by us trying to be God. And now Jesus came to earth and died on the cross for our sins so that through grace and faith, we could have a right relationship with our Father in heaven again. Like prodigal children, sons and daughters, we, in faith, by grace, come back into a right relationship with our Father in heaven. And Jesus' resurrection gives us the opportunity to be raised to new life here and now in this world in anticipation of the world that is to come, the the final resurrection. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Paul is preaching in the marketplace, and he preaches it in uh, in the synagogue and in the marketplace. Uh, This is so very crucial that we understand the message because Jesus is... He came to us, and now as followers of Jesus, he calls us to go to them, if you will. In other words, the same grace that we have been afforded, now we as the people of God are the messengers of God carrying that grace, carrying that story, carrying reconciliation to others that have yet to believe. Now, as we get to this sermon, there's one other thing I need to let you know um, Paul, if you've heard this story before in, in, at Mars Hill in Athens, so many people have read this as like a friendly dialogue. And uh, I know that's how I initially read it. Uh, but I think there's an indication that it's not as friendly as we may have once thought. Uh, first, they call him a babbler, right? It's a little bit condescending. <laughs> what, what is this guy carrying around these strange, wild, weird words? And it's like he's just talking and talking and won't stop. Um, Then the other indication that this is not so friendly is the word new. In Athenian culture, in ancient Greece, it was not a compliment to be new. To be new was to be skeptical and less than. What they valued in Athens was old. It it, it was what came before. It It was the statues of what had been. I mean, Athens was this place of incredible philosophy. And so what Paul is told here when he's, he's saying, you are bringing new ideas to us, that, that's not a compliment. In fact, some people wonder if Paul was actually on trial at this moment because uh, Socrates previously had been at this very place, at the Oropagus. And while he was there, uh, Socrates was charged and tried and ultimately condemned 
for this, for preaching foreign divinities. So as we think about this moment in Athens, as we think about Paul here, the babbler, he, he, he might be on trial for his life as he's sharing this sermon that's about to come with the people. Now, I, I want to I make this comment first before we jump in. As, as Paul goes into Athens that day, he, he sees something that's very clear, and it's the context has completely changed. This context is different than anywhere he's been before. He's now in Greece, remember? And he is in a very pagan society. Many idols. And it's the center of Greek philosophy. Athens was the place. It's where the big three came from. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. All from Athens. Like, if you want to debate the ideas, you go to Athens. And the Epicureans and the Stoics, they they were big. And they spent all their time doing nothing but talking about new ideas and philosophies. So as we begin to wrap our minds around where Paul is and his context, this is, this is different than Jerusalem, right? This is different than ancient Israel where people knew about Jesus and, and what had happened, the current events in Jerusalem that day. He's in a completely foreign place. Um, not only this, he gets invited to the Areopagus. I want to show you a picture of this. Uh, today, if you were to go to Athens, you would see um, this here is Mars Hill, all right? This is the Areopagus, and um, this is the place where they would exchange these ideas. You can go and climb up on it today. I haven't done that. If anyone wants to go, let's go, all right? I'm in. Um, and then up on the hill is uh, what we would call the, the Acropolis, and uh, the Parthenon is up there. Do you still have, uh, Teresa, the other photograph? If you do, no, no, no problem. Um, there's another angle. It's one that you would recognize. But up on top of the Acropolis is the Parthenon and um, the, uh, the Agora. And so he's either down here on Mars Hill, literally, or he's at the Agora up on the hill. And he's spending time talking with these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. And what it does for you and I today is it gives us insight into how we can take the never-changing message into an ever-changing context. And so we want to have ears to hear what Paul says in this sermon because it will give us insight into how we might reach the marketplaces that we live in, the places we work, right, the neighborhoods that we live in, the family that have doubts or questions about God the people that we interact with in the, in the sports world, at the ball fields, or in the entertainment places that we find ourselves, restaurants, coffee shops. So Paul, in Acts 17, verse 22, stands up, and he gives us this incredible and insightful word uh, that, that will have implications for our day and age. Paul stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus, and he said, People of Athens... I see that in every way, you are very religious. Already, I'm like screeching the brakes, okay? <laughs> because I mean, th- this isn't what I would think we would do, right? We would get on Facebook, and we would say, you pagan sinners, you're all going to hell. Like, you know, lightning thumbs. Get them, you know. Um, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, 
I mean, he's, he's like studying, he's examining, he's, he's observing who, who are these people and what do they believe. And it's in an effort to be able to speak into their context the message of Christ. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. And he's like, ah, that's my end. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. Let me pause again. <laughs> this is Athens. These are the Greek philosophers. These are the most learned people in the world. And he says, oh, <laughs> you're ignorant. <laughs> All right. Uh, you know, it, it's not just like that he's not going to confront them. It's not that he's just trying to placate them or something. No, he, he's, he's getting to the point of his message. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you, the unknown God. Like, you worship all the gods, and you thought, you know what, maybe we missed one in the pantheon, so let's make an altar to the unknown one, just in case we missed one, because we want all the gods to have mercy on us, and we don't want them to, to you know, send lightning bolts on us. And we, If we forgot one, we don't want to make him mad, and so let's, let's, to the unknown God. Well, let me tell you about the unknown God, the one that you think you might have missed. That God is the one who made the world. And everything in it. And he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. If, if there is a God, he doesn't need anything. If there is a God, what, what can we offer God? The, the very definition or essence of God is that he would be self-contained, right? He, he, he would be self-sufficient. He, he, he has no need from humanity. Rather, he gives everyone life and breath and everything else, right? We don't give something to him. We can worship him. We can revere him. We can pray to him. He doesn't need any of that. He's the one who gives everything to us, life, breath, meaning. And from one man... He made all the nations that should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now, he commands all people everywhere to repent, to change. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man. Right? He, he talked about the first human and creation that follows, and then he goes to the ultimate human, if you will, Jesus, who will judge with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now, there's a little bit of speculation. Did Paul name Jesus here or not, and what are the implications of that? We don't know. Luke may be summarizing uh, what he said here, and, um, and perhaps he did use the name of Jesus. Regardless, we were told at the beginning, he spoke Jesus and he spoke resurrection. It's very clear who he's talking about here, whether he says the name or not. And when they heard 
about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, for it was at this very Oropagus that several hundred years prior, the Greeks had decided there is no resurrection. And he comes and says, oh, let me tell you, there is one. And the first to rise from the dead has already done so. And he offers all of us resurrection. But others, some sneered, but others said, we want to hear from you again on this subject. I can't imagine a better compliment than for a Christian to speak in such a way that an unsaved person, yet to be saved person, would say, I don't, I don't buy that yet, but I'm, I, I want to hear more. I'm willing to listen another time. And at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus. Wow, that's, that's impressive. And also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. There's a handful of things that we need to think about in this teaching. He begins in such an incredible way. He, he's speaking to the men of Athens, that's who would have been gathered there. If, if, if there would have been women, he would speak to them as well. The people of Athens. And uh, again, we've talked about who would have been in Athens. Athens was the philosophical center uh, of the world of that time. Much like we would associate in our minds, um, you know, New York City is, is money and the financial market or, or celebrities. You know, Nashville is music and, and country artists. And um, D.C. is political power and, and movers and shakers in business. You know, Athens was the philosophical center. And... He says, I see that in every way you are religious. He's trying to find common ground. He's trying to build a bridge with the people that he's speaking to. There, there's an unknown God inscription, and that's where I want to begin. I, I want to tell you about this God. And then he, he preaches this incredible sermon that reveals the unknown God to these people uh, in a, what we call a contextualized sense. The, the way that Paul speaks addresses the Epicureans and the Stoics. Right? If, if we had more time, we could kind of dive into that if we were in like a Q&A format in a smaller group. But just quickly on the surface, uh, the Epicureans, they believed that God, the gods, if they existed, right? We're not sure if, if they exist or not, but if they did, they're distant and they're far away and there's very little communication between us and them. So, for an Epicurean, the, the, the goal in life is to find all the pleasure you can. Just enjoy life. Eat, drink, and be merry for, for we all, will, we're gonna die eventually. And Paul, he not only connects with that audience, he also confronts that audience as you think back to his message, he's saying God is not far. God is near. He wants people to find him. He calls them to repent and to believe in Jesus. So he connects with the Epicureans and he confronts the Epicurean philosophy. He does the same with the Stoics. Uh, the Stoics, they believed that God was here, that God was with us. But uh, they, they didn't see this as a personal God. It, it was more like a pantheism. You know, God is in all of us. And uh, for them, the way to connect with that God, if you will, the gods, would be to live a virtuous life. 
Live a good moral life, and that connects you with the divine, and that's the, the meaning. And again, he connects with that audience, particularly, while at the same time confronting them. He's saying, yeah, you're right, God is among us. But listen, we can't, we can't live a good enough life. We have to have Jesus. Like worshiping these idols, that doesn't get it done. There, there isn't a God that takes the shape of an idol. You, you can't contain who God is. Confronting, connecting first, and then confronting. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, I'm so impressed imagining going into the headquarters of the philosophical world, having two vastly different audiences, and then telling the story of God in such a compelling way, confronting and connecting with all of those listening, that they would invite him to come back and speak again. Fascinating. I mean, this is a master class kind of a sermon on what it looks like to speak about God in the marketplace today. One thing that I know about this story that I think is important for you and I today is this. Note, some sneered, some believed, and some said, come back, we want to hear more. And I think that's encouraging to us today because in a pluralistic society that has strayed far from God, it's not like Acts chapter 2 where you preach one sermon and 3,000 people go, all right, let's get baptized, I'm in, right? This big revival and everyone's like, yeah, I'm... That was a Christian, or really Jewish is the better word. That was a Jewish context. They believed in God, first Christian sermon, and, and they respond because they're much further along in their faith journey than a pagan pluralistic society. Only a few become followers. It, it, it's almost like we're working to earn a second hearing. But the, the, the goal, of course, is that they would follow Christ, but th that may not happen in one conversation. It may require us to have the right, to earn the right to come back and speak again so that then over a series of conversations, someone could draw near to God. Of course, some still will sneer. Some will reject the message. And as I think about this, he calls them to repent, to turn to God, to trust Jesus and the resurrection, the message, the message doesn't change. I, I would say it like this. Uh, we, we said before, the context has changed, but here we have it. The context has changed, but the mission has not. The, the mission is still to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of the world, to all people that would hear and listen. And the same is true for you and I today. So how, how do we update or change our methodology without changing the message? Well, I, I want to compare, just for a moment, the Acts 2 church and the Acts 17 church to help us think through what this might look like for you and I today. In Acts chapter 2, uh, we were talking about Peter. He was the one that preached the sermon. He was, if you will, the apostle to the Jewish people. And... He was in a place, he was at a religious festival called Pentecost. He was in a place where all the folks there were there to worship God. They were there to offer sacrifices. They were, they were believers. And this is an entirely different context than Acts 17, where we have the Apostle Paul. And he's preaching to a Greek or a Gentile audience. Completely different context. Lots of idols in the city. And he's very distressed by that. 
So I, I begin to ask, you know, which context do you think that we find ourselves in today? In Acts 2, then, Peter quotes from the Old Testament. He's like, okay, these people know and believe the Old Testament. This is a source of authority for these people. And so he's quoting from Joel. He's quoting from Psalms in an effort to point to Jesus, saying he's the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. Jesus is the Messiah, God's son. Look and believe on him. Well, Paul, in Acts 17 to the best of our knowledge, he's not quoting the Old Testament. They didn't know what the Old Testament was. The Tanakh, what's that? Right? I, I believe in all the, the Greek gods. And so he, he actually is quoting their poets, um, Erastus. And um, he, he's like, in him, I, I, we live and move and have our being. Even your own poets say we are his offspring. What, what Paul's doing is saying God created the world, and then ultimately he sent Jesus and he's the one that we need to believe in. And in order to get them toward that end, he's quoting the poets of their day. He's studied and examined and observed enough to know who he is speaking to and how to connect with them in a way that points them to Christ. I mean, he's like, for us, he's quoting Justin Bieber and Taylor Swift, right? The modern poets of our day. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I say in jest, right? Maybe more like uh, you too, right? A little more, uh, I don't know, whoever. You pick your poet of the day. And he's using these truths that they already believed to point to the truth that they needed to believe in. The way, the truth, and the life. And as we get to the invitation part of the sermon, the response of the people... In Acts 2, we already said this. He says, so repent and be baptized. Everyone's like, 3,000 people. What, what a response. But in Acts chapter 17, there is only a few that come to know Christ. I, I, I call Acts 17, I call it a reverse invitation. Here's why. Instead of the preacher doing an altar call and saying, hey, all of you that want to accept Jesus, come on down front. The audience, it was a reverse inv invitation. The audience invited the preacher. Hey, we think we'd like to hear you a little bit more on that. Wow, incredible. T to be able to earn a second hearing so that people might come to know the faith and the hope that we have in Jesus. As we look at this chart here, I believe that we have a lot of Acts 2 churches today in an Acts 17 world. And we need some more Acts 17 churches, some more Acts 17 Christians that can speak into the context, not to change the message, but just simply to update the method so that the mission is still accomplished. The context has changed, but the mission has not changed. What we desperately need are people like Paul today who, with wisdom, they can connect with the culture in a way that lovingly confronts the culture and ultimately points them to Jesus to grace, to hope, to repentance, to God. You know, as I think about this uh, for you and I practically, how, how would we do this in our daily life? <laughs> I'm reminded of how much has changed in the last 70 or 7 years. Uh, a couple quick examples. One, how do you rent movies today? All right? Well, you go down to the blockbuster here on Electric Road and... 
Oh, wait, I think that's a Verizon store now. I'm being silly. Blockbuster, like, it went out of business, right? So instead, we go to the little red box, and we take our paper dollar bill and insert. No, we don't even do that anymore, right? We, we just, like, pull it up on our TV and, you know, punch in our password and, and rent stream the movie. Um, how do we find our way to the place where we're going? We pull out our big atlas, right, and our protractor, and... We, uh, boy, I don't know if I've ever done that. We, thankfully, Google Maps tells us or whoever where to go and how to get there. Like, turn right here. Here or there. Like, oh, okay, well, don't look down at your phone. Get arrested. So Google Maps has revolutionized the way that we find our directions places. There's a famous example in Kodak. They were actually the first to develop digital technology uh, photographically. And yet they doubled down on film. So they were first to market in digital photography. They doubled down on film, film, so they went bankrupt. And now, you know, we all take pictures on our phones. It's better in many ways than the traditional way. It's just an example that in healthcare, in news, in print media, in every single way, the world has been revolutionized. And we don't change the, the never-changing message of Jesus, the gospel that we talked about in the beginning. But we have to figure out the way to speak that message into the context that we find ourselves in. What would it look like to be an Acts 17 church or Christian today? How can we take the gospel into the marketplace that we find ourselves in? I, I want to offer three things right out of this this story that we've read, three practical ways that this takes shape in our lives. One is this. We need to study the culture. How can we take the gospel into the marketplace? Well, first we have to know the audience. We have to realize what they think. We have to understand the idols that exist in our day. Yeah, we don't bow down and worship like little statues anymore, we're, we're way more sophisticated and evolved than that. But, but there are idols nonetheless. And many people, they idolize work or success. Uh, the idol is, is wealth or entertainment. The idol can even be family or our kids. What are the things that we place ahead of God? What are the things that we trust in? as a society, and when we begin to unlock what the modern idols are in our society, we can connect with people and confront that same idolatry, like Paul does in Acts chapter 17. Again, we're not placating here. We're not compromising the gospel. We're confronting the idolatry in our day that looks different, but it's the same principle from Acts chapter 17. Paul studied the idols. He observed and knew the poets and the, the, the people of influence and the truths that were held in that day? What if we could find a truth that someone believed in and use that to point them to Christ in our day? What would that look like in our context? Well, we study the culture so that we can, number two, share Christ with the culture, with the people that we now know a little bit about. 
We know names and faces. We know values. We know beliefs. And now we have the opportunity to hopefully share Christ with them in such a way that they come to believe. They repent from their sin and idolatry, and they turn to God and trust him with their lives. His emphasis was on Jesus and on resurrection. And we have this incredible message, the most revolutionary message in the history of the world, that Jesus died for our sin and offers us a way back to Christ, to God in Christ. And this is the message that never changes, that we have to share with those who we know and who we love. And number three, we need to work toward a second chance. What if we shared Christ in such a way that people said, you know what? I don't know that I believe all that stuff that you're saying. I'm not yet sold on the Bible. I, I, don't, I haven't you know, figured out all the philosophies and, and the con- contradicting ideas in my brain. But I know your character, right? You, I know that, that you've thought this through. I can tell there's something interesting here, and, and I want to hear again. Let, let's talk a little bit more about what it is that you believe. And then over time, by God's grace, praying for them, the the Holy Spirit drawing them in, over time, a few of them, they may become believers, like Dionysius or others. That would be the hope, that would be the aim, that they might come to know Christ if we earn a second chance to speak to them. We carry the most important message in the world, the gospel, of Jesus, who came from God to us to make a way. And now Jesus sends us, the body of Christ, his people, as agents of reconciliation, as bearers of the message of hope. We take with us grace and forgiveness and new life. And Jesus has called us to share that with the world around us. Um, if you have yet to believe that message, we would, we would invite you to do that today. Um, but we also recognize that the world has shifted, right? And so it's not always just, hey, come to church with me and, and come on our turf and then we show you what it means to follow Jesus. W- what really is at stake here is that we, the body of Christ, we go. We are sent into the world so that we at the Oropaguses, the marketplaces of our day and age, we can share that hope out there. You are a better evangelist in your world than any of the rest of us could ever be. Uh, But if you have yet to accept that message today, we don't want to miss an opportunity. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, We'd love to begin a conversation about what it means to follow Jesus in our day and in our age. I want to close with a word of prayer. And then next week we pick back up in Acts chapter 18. Uh, I'm excited about where we're headed in the next several weeks, and uh, we look forward to hopefully welcoming you back next Sunday. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there's so much here. It's incredible to think about this message and this place and what it means for us today. Thank you that Jesus makes this possible. I pray that you would give us wisdom to know what does it look like to be Acts 17 Christians and churches in an effort to reach the world that we find ourselves in. Help us to grow in that wisdom. Help us to be led by your spirit. Open doors. Give us the names and and the faces of people 
that need to hear and know what you've done in our lives. Thank you for what you've done. And we all say this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Wish you grace and peace this week. Have a great one, and we'll see you next Sunday.